0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, We have Greg Vandergast on today, Um, somebody I've met in person, somebody John hasn't met yet. Um, We've had some intriguing conversations, some exciting conversations, and I guess we had burgers once in Manchester, and it was quite a good fun night. Um, So I thought it would be worth getting you on and talking about your background and talking about cyber in general uh, and talking about your book. Um, So I guess the first question is going to be, Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how did you get to where you are today?
1: Oh, I'd forgotten about those burgers. Those, those were some filthy, filthy burgers, weren't they? Yeah, they uh, were. Yeah, I'm, I'm Greg Venegas. I work in security, uh, probably a bit of an outlier, I think, in the field. Uh, I've been doing this for about 25 years. Uh, I... St- I think a lot of people see it like you're an IT person that transitions into security. I've I've always been either a security person or maybe a problem-solving kind of person that got into security. And the uh, the exact kickoff to the IT security moment was, uh, I think I was 16, and my sister brought home a VHS copy of the movie Hackers. And my main takeaway was basically, if I break into computers, I get to shag Angelina Jolie. So that was a fairly strong motivator. And uh, about a year later, I kind of broke into a nuclear weapons facility about a few weeks after they set up five bombs underground, stole all the research and then a few months after that, some men in suits came to the house and uh, took me away and then came back and then uh, made me a, a job offer I couldn't refuse. We're really adamant about the couldn't refuse part uh spent three years not officially existing doing stuff for uncle sam uh and then yeah kind of became your your typical kind of security contractor all the latest greatest security technologies implementing it getting paid money and that was probably about 15 years ago but then I became responsible for the actual security of the organization and I started realizing like we're doing a lot of tech we're not getting a lot of outcomes and uh a lot of my focus of the last especially five years, 10 to five years has been really like, how do I actually structure this? How do we actually make this work for a business that we actually get results and we have fewer issues and we see an improvement over time. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I advise on what I write about. That's, that's my bag. Dang. You hit like two movies there, sneaker or
2: sneakers and then war games killing me. War Games is a great movie. I know, I know. War Games has nuclear weapons involved in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or Hackers. Hackers. I'm sorry, it was Hackers, but Hackers and War Games. Those are like the two movies that everyone that I talk to says, I watched one of those movies and that's why I got into security.
1: Yeah. Although I hadn't thought about Sneakers, but I really like Sneakers. That was a good one too. uh,
0: So I'm going to have to rewind a little bit. So if all this happened when you were like 16, 17 years old. Yeah. How did you get to the point where you could do that? What, what, like, where did you start playing with computers at the age of like five, or did you really start at 16? And I'm like, suddenly you're hacking into
1: stuff. Honestly, I think at the time, I think I had like a 286 computer and I had like a dial up internet. And uh, yeah, I just started kind of learning. I didn't even know, like, I was on Windows 3.1, I think. I think my computer really struck. I think I was running that like sixteen hours or something because my computer wasn't was actually below the minimum spec because you needed a three eighty six or something. Um, Just connecting, learning, reading a lot of books, you know, going on like Usenet and then browsing these things and then learning about Linux and installing Linux and playing around with it. Um, And initially, I, I, you know, the internet had to actually go to the store and buy a copy of like Red Hat Linux because you. Yeah. down it was too too heavy at the time uh for the connections we had and I just kind of learned about it and you know again angie, angie good good motivator uh but always always quite curious about how stuff works okay now i have linux so how, how does dns work how does this email service work how does you know how does ssh work and, and just i think i was reading a lot of the o'reilly books i think by the time i was like 20 i had at some point i have I had every O'Reilly book ever written, but then they just started making way too many, and I couldn't keep up. Yeah, I mean,
0: to be honest, before I have these kind of conversations, I stalk people a little bit on the web and on LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, I've met you, but I still stalked you a little bit, and I look for your list of qualifications. And I'm like, do you just have every one, like every Cyber and every Cisco? And a,
1: like, uh, the funny thing is, I became quite. It was weird because I remember. You know, you get into the operating system, the hacking scene, we're talking like late 90s, where very few people had in depth networking knowledge. I remember like buying like the TCP IP illustrated volume 123 and reading all that. And I got to a point where like there's in that book somewhere in chapter one, I think there's actually a mistake in how windowing TCP IP windowing is described or an inconsistency or something. Uh, I remember that, but just Learning a law, and then because of that, got like a shit ton of sorry leap ton of uh, Cisco certifications, and yeah, I got the CISSP and the, the the three specializations: the architecture, management, engineering, CISA, CISM, CGIT, CCH. Uh, I just went on a binge and got loads and loads. Never studied for them. Well, never never took a course for them. But I would always go to Borders or Barnes and Noble, the two main bookstores in the states. Buy the you know, go f- finish a test. Pass by the bookstore on the way home. Get the next book, read it. One or two weeks later, take the test again. And I think at one point, I like fourteen certifications in sixteen weeks or something. Just, yeah, to... I... I've let every single one of them lapse. It's just not relevant anymore.
0: So, what what convinced you or encouraged you to go from that kind of life into trying to help people? Because they're, they're it's like the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess the men turning up at your door and taking you away, probably encouraged that a little bit.
1: Well, um, I don't think it was ever a bad guy. Oh, he's just like a curious teenager Yeah, it's all virtual. You don't really realize that there's, especially back then, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about cyber and this and that. Um, but the funny thing is I remember the, I th- I think even back then in, in looking in hindsight, it was always more of a defender or a, of myself, of my own system than someone who went out and hacked because you didn't have like firewalls. We didn't have home routers. We didn't have like netted IP addresses or any of that. So you had to make, if I got on IRC with a bunch of other hackers, I had to make damn sure my machine was (laughs) was robust because it's your IP address that shows. And if you hadn't hardened everything, patched everything, configured everything right, yeah, back then hard drives still made noise and still had little LED lights, so they you just went and you realize why is everything shutting down? Ah, oh, someone's formatting me. So, <laughs> so you kind of I like I learned this really big focus on like I need to be really thorough and systematic in how I harden my box, and I think that's where that started. And when I first started building uh, security programs, it wasn't like NIST or this or that. Like I'll oh, implement all these security technologies, like do your IT really, really well, provision your systems well, configure them well, maintain them well, patch them well, uh, assign your user permissions well. Uh, That that's always been like a big part of that kind of have really high levels of quality and everything you do from the ground up. Uh, That's one thing that I think a lot of people don't get nowadays. I I see people working for a large VAR now is people like, oh, we want to buy some EDR. like, do you how's your asset management like? Like, do you even know how many assets you have like, no I don't think you need an EDR I think you need to know what you have in your environment first and then we're going to see how well it's configured and then we're going to see how you manage it and how you provision it and how you end of life it how you assign rights to it once you've built that we'll maybe get you an EDR because otherwise I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends in the Mossad who will tell you how they will use your EDR against you because your environment is easily compromised and they're going to make your EDR agent just report whatever they want you to see so what do you? What, I mean, so let's get into it. What what do you sort of
2: attribute that to? Um, when you talk to customers, it's it's always about the tools, uh, the shiny objects to solve the problem. Yet they haven't done the basics. They they haven't done the, the patching. They haven't built up their practices. They don't know what they really have. But um, you know that they, they come out and they're like, hey, let's let's go with this shiny object because it will fix all. Is this a human problem
1: or uh, is this just part of the industry itself? I think it's a it's a structural problem of some kind. Um, I like to give. I, th- I think a lot of people in security are very, very siloed, and I quite often hire people that no one in security wants to hire because they say they're not qualified. or not technical enough. It's like, yeah, they're not as technical as you. But they're able to have a conversation with the other person upstream and therefore prevent this entire problem that is your job to deal with to just not exist in the first place. Uh, And that's actually quite threatening to a lot of techies. Um, I I sometimes give the analogy of. um, uh, Imagine if you're an aircraft manufacturer like Boeing or Airbus and you manufacture a new plane, you sell a few hundred, they fly them around the world, airlines flying around the world and. Of one day, uh, some technician somewhere for some airline discovers that the bolts that hold the wings on come loose during flight. But that's going to be a big problem. And so, well, what do we do? Well, we're going to build a workshop in every single airport in the world. And after every single flight, we're going to take the plane out of service, put in the workshop, test and retorque every single bolt to minimize the risk of the wing coming off on the next flight. And the first time I told the analogy to someone who wasn't a security person, they said, "No, you wouldn't. That's stupid." And It is, but it's how we do most of security today. And when you see what an aircraft manufacturer, like if that were to happen to Boeing or Airbus, let's use Airbus because Boeing's history is not great recently. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, that would get reported. And then next thing you know, like. The senior leadership team would be mo- would be notified, uh, you know, a design agency would, or, you know, the design would be examined, the, f- the problem would be found, so a solution would be re-engineered, we start producing the new plane with that, we'd retrofit or retire what was in the field, and that problem is gone. There's nothing left to risk manage. And we've learned some lessons on how to create pastors in the future, so we're less likely to repeat this problem in the first place. and people in security and I ask people in security, why don't we do that? Why is it that every other industry, oil and gas, aviation, manufacturing, automotive, uh, healthcare, their defects, incident rates over time go down like this, whereas in security, it's like this, because we don't do any kind of quality management to address these root causes. We only risk manage the ever increasing risks. This is where you just see increased spending and increased incidents. Like it's, it's pointless. And when I bring this up to security people, they say, yes, I get that. Well, actually half of them say, shut up, Greg. Don't tell them that I'll lose my job. But the other half say, yes, I get that, but I I don't own any of those things. The aviation technician doesn't own the design bureau, the SLT or the the assembly line either, but they have a structure in place to make those things happen. And as a CISO, that's one of my very first things, like I need to make sure the structure is here. I need to show that there's a cost benefit of actually doing it this way. Um, Problem is... I think a lot of CISOs are like, we are C- have this thing about not being cons- like taken seriously at C level. If you're a sea level, you want to cut costs everywhere in your business. And most CISOs measure themselves by budget and headcount. If I do that, I'm going to reduce the number of issues that I have. But I'm also going to give, like in my last role as a CISO, I gave back 40% of my budget because I didn't need any more. Because I, I resolved the issues upstream that I had way fewer incidents, way fewer vulnerabilities to manage didn't need the money anymore. We we lowered our headcount a bit as well. I don't see people wanting to do that. That's why executives are paid mostly in equity and most CISOs aren't.
0: And so, do you yeah, think that, that is... Because... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, do you think... I mean, I've been in the industry quite a while now and we've never really thought of security before the product was released or before the technology was released. It's always been... A bolt on after. I mean, TCPIP itself and all of these other protocols and the way we've always done things have always made it efficient for the business to run and everyone's connected to everything all of the time.
1: Okay.
0: Is it, I mean, you, you mentioned it, but is it because we don't know how to go back and redo something or because the foundation of everything we do in IT is not the right foundation?
1: I think, you know, like the, the base technologies that we have to work with, yeah, they're not perfect, but we've, we've found technical ways to solve most of those issues. I, I think it's more like the issues we experience are preventable. It's not because we're saddled with, you know, IPv4 or something. You look at like OWASP t- top 10 vulnerabilities, what, eight of the 10 have been the same for 20 years. Like we know these are issues and we know how to fix them, but we keep repeating them. I think we have a, it's that structure. And I think a big part of the problem is security. Having such a big disconnect from the business. uh, Like, I think most CISOs need MBAs or at least finance degrees or something. Because if I can, if I have an engineering department and they're causing me so much grief by behaving a certain way, which is causing me all these extra issues to manage, but they do it because it saves them 10 minutes a day. Well, if I didn't report that, you know, keep track of those things and then start assigning my costs to mitigating or or managing that issue. And then I take that to the CFO. and say, that 50K uh, engineering saved you last year? Yeah. It's cost us 800K to manage. Ah, the next thing you know, the CFO is kicking their ass. And I want my 750K back from you guys and do it this way, because you might be saving 50K from your budget, but at the end of the day, you're costing the business you know the balance 750k a year. So I think we, we need to be able to like understand the, the total cost of ownership. Because we're we're supposed to be there to minimize loss to the business. But if we are not addressing issues upstream, we're not actually proactively eliminating any loss to the business.
0: So the average tenor for a CISO is like two and a half years. It may have even come down over the last couple of months. Um how are they expected to learn the business if they're not there that long and and do you think they need to learn the business and why are people leaving and that's
1: a lot I, would, of- I wouldn't say they have to learn the business they have to learn business and I yeah. think once once they understand business once you're able to have a conversation with the CEO and say look we need to systematically go through all of our business processes so that we make sure that they are of high quality which is good for business also it means you're going to have lower costs the efficiencies synergies and fewer vulnerabilities because Vulnerabilities are quality defects, whether they're in code, in configurations, in system built, in process, in maintainability, uh, in human behavior, they're all quality defects. Um, I had one case where like uh, a couple of years ago, a lot of my engineering issues were, uh, a lot of my vulnerability issues were caused by engineering practices. By addressing those engineering practices, we dramatically reduced the number of vulnerabilities we had. We also lowered our AWS, our AWS bill by 30%. That was 150k a month. That that's a big saving to remove security vulnerabilities. So the security doesn't have to be a co- uh, cost center. I think it should be a quality center. By by treating things as quality issues, you drive all these efficiencies. And once you explain that to CEO, they they get this. They understand quality management. They understand that things have to happen upstream if they're to be maintainable.
0: So what do you we think? We are self
1: siloing. Is-
0: I mean, the CISO roles relatively new yeah. um and it comes with a lot of risks there's regulations at the moment and and there's all kinds of stuff that means you're personally liable and and all of those things so nothing's really encouraging someone to be a CISO today um but but do you think your security backgrounds that enabled you to become a CISO that thinks of the way you think or or is it what makes a good CISO?
1: I think uh, I more and more like I I enjoy the business and the problem solving aspect of it way more than the technology itself. Like I think the familiarity with technology is obviously important, but it's it's solving the problem. It's the business problem. It's doing the things that everyone else seems to complain can't be done. You know, Everyone's moaning to management, "Oh, they don't care. They don't understand risk." And the, that's ridiculous, half, a, half the board's time is spent talking about risk. You know, it's just, it's more about the communication skills, the engagement skills, creating value. Uh, how many CISOs are out there and they're frustrated because they can't get their $5 million security budget approved, but ask them like, ask them like, is this, is this gonna give more than 5 million back to the business? Like, is there a 5 million plus ROI on this 5 million that you're asking me to spend? And they're like, yes, 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 of course. I was like, okay, why don't you give us the 5 million and we'll give you the return on investment? And all of a sudden, they're not so sure. So if you're not so sure about it, if you're not willing to risk your own money in doing it, then how are you expecting the business to give it back to you? Is you know, are, are we actually serious about the ROI that we're producing? Because I see a lot of CISOs not wanting additional visibility. I go to like, you need to look at this or buy technology that will give you greater visibility and they're like, No, that will give me more work. And that's like, imagine a security guard is like, no, don't put cameras over there. I don't wanna know what's going on over there. That'll give me more work. And and unfortunately, I I see that a lot. It's it's really disheartening as well. And I sometimes say security is the best job there is because no one really understands what you're supposed to be doing. No one really knows whether you're doing it. And if you screw screw up really badly, you you get your budget doubled. Although now sometimes you get charged by the SEC as well. But that is, I used to audit And my job would be to find, um, basically go into companies that have been breached and on behalf of the cyber insurance company or a law firm representing the cyber insurance company and show that they were negligent so they wouldn't have to pay out the policy. And I was successful 100% of the time and it never took me until lunchtime. And there was always a lack of engagement with the business, a lack of understanding of the business. Um, they, They didn't know stuff that was going on elsewhere in the business, which. of itself isn't negligent the negligent part was there was never a plan to ever get to it they were never going to go and talk to the legal department or the hr department where the breach started to understand what they actually did and what risks there were there it was just like no we're just i.t we just run some policies and this and that they were never even going to get to the area of the business that caused the incident and that's the negligent part like if, if you're gonna to get to it in three years, that's bad luck. You didn't get to it in time. But you never even plan to do so. And uh, I think I think this is increasing increasingly we see breaches starting outside the IT department. If you think about it. Yeah. You know, Uber with uh their legal department that was just setting out records. Uh we had the um police services in Northern Ireland here where they a FOIA request basically. Um and I've seen it, you know, seen several others recently with an airport. It's like you've got a hardware maintenance company plugged in behind your firewall, but the security team doesn't know about it because they do build, you know, building operations management. But you have an outside physical, you know, hardware vendor that does conveyor belts plugged into your network, and the security team doesn't even know about it.
2: Well, third party I mean, risk is is out there. I mean, Solar Winds yeah. is an example of that um octa with uh, what happened with the gaming industry here in the u.s um it's a huge yeah. huge massive problem I'm not,
1: even, I'm not even talking about like you know the software third-party like literally like there is a company that hooks up into your internal network to manage right. some of your physical appliance like not not even it like devices like conveyor belts that kind of stuff yeah. you don't know they're there
0: when yeah. i came from a manufacturing company and, and i know john you had this as well where you were that People needed to get into access machinery, and and I'd walk over, or walk around the shop floor, and I'd be like, "You've got VNC installed on your machine, and someone's not mm-hmm. controlling it." What,
2: like, yeah? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, dwell times, dwell times down to like I don't know, hours now. I mean, it used to be a hundred days, three weeks. Now it's just a matter of hours, and nah, they go and steal whatever they want to steal, the, leave you with leave you with a it, ransom.
0: Like. Well, and that, that, that's what's different in the world where I think we live in today is we never knew historically if someone had gotten and taken data and, and taken it because they would do it quite stealth and you'd never know. The only reason people know nowadays is because they hold you to ransom on it, yeah. right? So I think that's the big differentiator. Um, but it does bring me on to, to zero trust in a nice way. Um, <laughs> so I think we've covered here that it's not just all about technology. And I, I believe that zero trust isn't a technology. It's a, a, a strategy change. And I know what your answer is because we've spoken about this before.
1: Yeah. I, I'm just surprised that it's a change. <laughs> you mean you want to deny access un, unless you know it's good? What a crazy concept that is. <laughs> is! not like the very definition of a security mindset. Like, like when people tell me about this, I'm like, hold on. How is this new? <laughs> like... Uh, I was talking to the uh, well, a government agency, and they're 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 a whole new strategy around security is secure by design. I was like, wait, this is new. Was, it's, a, it's a bit worried. Um, and if yeah, I had, you haven't
0: but, done that before,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I had a chat with like uh, John Kindervad a year or two ago, and I was like, John, like explain this to me because in my head it's always been like, you know, it, it's basically just try to limit the access as much as you can in as many dimensions as you can as many layers and levels as you can but at the end of the day you've got to trust something right and it's like yeah it's, it's more like a mentality or a philosophy than an actual product it's like okay and yeah what what could i say i i think
0: i i mean it's something that we should have always been doing i agree with you it's like you should only really give people access to stuff that they should have access to but historically for whatever reason we haven't done that and and I'm I'm a big advocate for zero trust, but I think we definitely, the conversations I've had recently over the, say, the last year or 18 months, you can't layer something on top of an unstable foundation. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. and that's what scares me. We talk more and more about the fact that the foundations are not stable. So you go out and you build this house on top of something and you're not doing the basics. You're not... You don't have proper passwords you don't know what's on your network because you've never audited you don't know what the users are actually accessing that's the scary stuff
1: right yeah i I remember working for a huge government contractor and they want to build this whole new platform for the government and we're talking like four years ago and they were building it on windows 2008 and i'm like no no guys no you can't you can't start a brand new project today with something that's already end of life uh, it, it was like a month-long battle and finally like fine we've got some 2012 licenses kicking about oh God okay at least that's <laughs> okay at least that's still in support for another year but it's still really a bad idea and then the project goes on and you know it 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 comes back to my attention and I was like hold on these are virtual machines so you got this whole like plethora of like 2012 virtual machines that make up the system I'm like these are virtual machines? Right? Yeah, okay. What's the hypervisor running? 2008. <laughs> you compromise the hypervisor, and obviously you control the memory, you control the CPU, you control the I.O., you can do whatever the hell you want What's what's running on top of it. Uh, so it's crazy. And the flip side, and what really puts me off with zero trust is the word zero. You cannot have zero trust. And some things, like for example, SSO is technically against zero trust because now you're trusting something that well, you didn't authenticate this time. You authenticated over there, and it's saying that you're authenticated, but I'm not checking again. So I may have circumvented or at least weakened zero trust by having one barrier instead of four, or whatever. I, I so think do you have a name? Me. Do you have a
2: name for it? Do you have a name for it? If you wanted to do your uh, your call,
1: what would you call it? I, I don't because th- I don't think there's a the perfect state. It's all of these are like kind of okay, but is it, so. If I have single sign-on that means if my account is compromised they've compromised all my accounts flip side of that is I'm probably less likely to get my account compromised because it'd be more secure so it's, it's like how just, everything's a balancing act you know you have to make your own decision I don't think there's this one ideal perfect end state zero trust is unplugging the computer you can't you can't do that so depending on your application you may want seven logins in a row to get to the prompt or whatever that you need or you may just want to sign in once and have access to all your applications. And if someone compromises it, so be it.
0: So we've talked a lot about the problems with the world it is today. What do you think the solutions are? What do you think? I mean, and I know you probably haven't got a magic wand, but no. what do we have to do differently?
1: Oh, God, I was going to say whiskey. Um, <laughs> well, I think... I see three major problems with security. Uh, And I'll tell them to you in the order in which I discovered them. And the first one was when I was still at the point where I was very much like playing with security, the cyber stuff, Uh, it's the maturity of implementation. I see so many security tools, A, become just shelfware, or B, they get implemented, but never fully configured. They're rarely well documented. There's rarely a process around them. No one understands how they're set up. I was recently talking to someone about a one very, very large, uh, well, they do everything from healthcare to home electronics, very well-known global brand. And they said they have about 215 different security solutions, but they have no idea where they are, what they're doing, what they're protecting or how they work. So their solution was to buy some more to wrap around the whole mess instead of, you no, know, you need to figure out you know, how you're doing this. Um, and that's kind of where I started doing like security programs. It's like, define what good looks like, create a document. I'm gonna have a process, I'm gonna have standards and what inputs and outputs and reporting and all that stuff that we have for every little thing we do. Uh, so first of all, is that, that lack of maturity and kind of connection with the actual security tools. The second one was we don't address root causes to things. Um, so I like to give the, the example of uh, vulnerability management. I scan my environment I've, you know, on a weekly basis. This year I've got 10,000 new vulnerabilities and same as last year, And then I address, you know, it ranks them for me, which are low, medium, high, critical, internet facing, actively being exploited, blah, blah, blah. And I prioritize like the top 500 that I can maybe get to. And that's it. And then next year I've got another 10,000 and I do the same thing over again. And again, I can get my 500 most critical ones, but I'm just, I'm building up all these low, medium, high vulnerabilities in the meantime. Uh, But no one goes and looks at the result and said, yeah, about, a. 40% of these seem to be based on bad patching and we have new vulnerabilities that are five year old CVEs. So clearly we're using old code in new applications and new deployments. And these host names are all over the place. So what's going on with our provisioning process? Do we have Shadow IT? Is there an issue with our, our procurement process that's allowing Shadow IT? Let me go out and fix those three or four business process issues. And then next year, you're not going to have 10,000 new vulnerabilities. You're going to have 6,000 and then repeat that process. And then the year after that, you're going to have 4,000. No one's doing that. And in fact, the whole classification could even be irrelevant because it's the fact that a CVE, particular CVE, is, isn't critical doesn't mean that whatever caused it can't produce like a real serious issue the next year. If I, If that CVE is because I have developers using three-year-old code and incorporating into new applications, there's nothing saying that next month they won't introduce another piece of three-year-old code that's really, really critical. So you have to look at the root cause of why you have these things, not just the things you have. Why are they there? And and no one's fixing the root cause to actually reduce the workload. And that's why we see security just like that. So that's the second issue I see. And the third one is that IT silo. Like we really need to stop doing IT security, cyber security and start systematically going through business process of every department and making sure we do those things securely. So do business securely, not cyber security. Those are my three big issues. And those are the things I think we should be doing differently.
0: And why do you think we're not doing them? Because it's boring.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go
2: buy the shiny object.
1: Yeah, exactly. People, I I think the people in our industry prefer to play with shiny tech in fact, I remember a half a million dollar order for firewalls where the vendor was selected because the LEDs were a cool color.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree with you. And I'm, I mean, maybe I'm just throwing a grenade in for the fun of it. But they are fun. We we, we are going to continue on this journey if we don't do something differently. I mean, I when I was in, in the corporate world, we, we would patch every weekend. So I lie, one weekend a month we would patch, but we would keep an eye on on more critical patches and we could get downtime window. And I worked for a manufacturer and getting that downtime was really, really, really hard. And the only way we managed to get that downtime is, was we got compromised one point. And I'm like, well, because you don't let me patch. I mean, this is critical. However, I still think we're patching too often. Whoever's writing the code, and it's not just particular, like it's all the vendors that they, you constantly are patching all the time. Maybe we just need the right code that is more kind of secure in the first place. Um, But I also agree that there's a lot of noise in the industry about there not being enough resources. But actually, if we do these things that you've just outlined, maybe we can get away with having less resources because you've got less problems, right?
1: Yeah, I think I'm quite dismissive about all the AI hype, but I think AI could potentially be a massive savior here in terms of code quality. If we, if we can get AI to start writing code that is clean, then we can really turn that around. And not just clean, but I think, like everyone wants to code Python now. Python is 76 times more computationally intensive than C. If I go to a CFO and tell him, you could reduce your compute bill by 98% by switching programming language, he's gonna fire every Python developer into place and find some C developers. But they don't know that, right? The business doesn't know that. So what if what if I get an AI to recode my application in C or assembly without including any of the libraries, any, any of the library functions that aren't actually being used in my app that are still being included, rewrite all the functions so that they're as lean and clean as possible. I mean, we, we would save... I, I remember once if we switched all the... Python code, if ever, like if everything ran on Python versus C, if we switch to C, the difference in uh, compute savings would be equivalent to taking 250 million cars off the road. That's how much energy is used just from inefficient code versus passcode. That's every single car in the EU off the road. I mean, yeah. Me- meanwhile, Microsoft Teams, my laptop wants to take off every time I start it. <laughs> From the fans spinning up but they're talking to be started free- on teams yeah exactly <laughs> so so there's that and then the the whole skill shortage thing like my my whole analogy for the security industry workforce is a bit like uh, uh also petrol head like you so it's it's this car factory and uh, you know they, they produce these cars on on this assembly line and after 100 stations the car gets pushed out of the out of the factory into the, the parking lot car park whatever to be sold, except they push it out from the third floor, so the car's all smashed up. Shit, we can't sell this. Move it over, and then we get we build a little workshop around it, and we get some people in, and we assess well. What's the damage? There's multiple damage. How do we prioritize? What's good enough? Uh, what parts do we need to change? In what order do we have to disassemble, reassemble stuff? Which tools do we need to do that? uh what framework should we work to let's get some auditors in to stick us to that let's get some vendors in to sell us better tools so we can work faster let's get some consultants in to tell us how to do things and we have to repeat this every three minutes because we can't fix the cars fast enough because every 30 seconds or something there's another car coming down next thing you know there's ten thousand people in this car park all working these really complicated techie jobs and i will then go and hire five or six people who No one wants to hire. So I'm paying them like 30% below market rate salary as well, saving my business money. And I put them there in this car park and they look at all these people who they can't compete with. Like we we don't know how to do these things. It's very technical. It looks very complicated. And then eventually one of them asks me a really stupid question. And it's, why are we dropping the cars from the third floor? And I have to tell him, it's because all these amazing, technical, brilliant people. Don't have the social and communication skills to talk to the people in the factory to make it come out the bottom or to argue the business case that it would be cheaper just to build a ramp and and you know it the third floor thing is for dramatic effect but it's basically defects being introduced at different points in the assembly lot and that's how we build systems but you know we've got the bad code we've got the bad configuration we've got the bad process and it all adds up to where we have systems that are nightmares from security standpoint. And then yeah, you need to keep throwing all these bodies at them to maintain them to try to mitigate the risks. But if we just address the issue upstream, it wouldn't be a problem.
0: So I saw you did uh, an event recently with InfoSec Life, Simon, but yeah. friends of both of ours, and you talked about vendors, good and bad. Right?
1: I think... <sighs> Do yeah. you
0: think that vendors are partially responsible for the world we live in today?
1: Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. I think it's very important to like, as a CISO, I choose my vendor based on my problem, not based on what they tell me. And quite often I use a vendor in a way that the vendor themselves doesn't intend. Um, So if I use for example, an uh, an automated pen testing solution, uh, there's one vendor out there who great company, great people, great culture, but they claim that their aim, for example, is to validate the vulnerabilities you have um, you know, Automated pen testing, validate the vulnerabilities you have, so you know which ones you don't need to fix. So, well, that's a bit of a lazy approach. I use it, for me, the value of that tool is, if I can do automated pen testing, that means I can pen test at scale, everywhere, more broadly, and that means I can pen test in different areas of my business, in different teams, different departments that are likely to have different cultures, different systems, different root causes to their problems. And that allows me to identify more root causes to fix, so I don't have any of the problems in the end at all. Instead of having to pick and choose which ones I'm actually going to fix, does that make a sense?
0: Yeah, I guess the problem for the vendors is if you fix all your problems, you don't need them anymore.
1: Yeah, I th- I think we still have a ways to go. So it's <laughs> <a, laughs> and you still need it's a long validate. road. Yeah, and you still need to validate, and like for me like the the solution is not there to fix the problem the solution the, the security solution is there to find me the threads to pull on and i think that is their real value it's not solving the problem it's just giving me a hint of hey you have a misconfiguration on the system and then i can go ask why what what ha- what process what, what chain of events has happened for that to have gone live misconfigured so i still need that tool But instead of just using it to firefight all the individual instances, the mindset is, why did this instance happen? Is this something that's happening regularly? Let me go fix that. The root cause underneath it.
0: So it all comes back to the root cause, right? Going back and fixing.
1: Everything is. Yeah. I
0: mean, and, but to be honest, you, I think you've summed it up better than anyone else um, by giving a few examples. So we are getting short on time. So, I want to ask you one more question about your book before we we get onto fun stuff. You only, do you have more than one book? I've seen you. You've got two books. What are they, and who should read them?
1: Um, so the first one is Rethinking Infosec, and I'll tell you what the, the thinking in it is a little bit dated, but it's about that like fix the root causes. It's, it's a bit more of a like an IT f- uh, focus. It's, it's, it's all about fixing the root causes. And the second one is called the what we call security. And this one's a little bit more senior. N- neither of them are very technical, but the second one is a lot about like all things wrong in security. Okay, the, the first one, the moan fest as well. Uh, but then how a quality focused approach can deal with these things. Because I I talk a lot about root causes and I thought, oh, I'm quite clever. I, can, I found a different way of doing that. But then you go talk to someone from like manufacturing industry and they're like, yeah, buddy, we've been doing that for 50 years. You're an idiot. Um, so, the second one is much more about how to do the value of doing that, but also um, I, I developed quite in terms of leadership and, and commercially a bit more senior. So, you know, making real like um, business talking points, commercial value, financial value out of your security investments, using it to win tenders, using it to lower your company's spending, relating to the executive uh that kind of stuff commercializing security giving like some really juicy talking points to go to your ceo like hey if if you give me some time i can turn this from being a you know a two million a year cost center for you to maybe a five million a year profit center um and that will obviously get you traction and they'll listen to you more and if there's money to be made you'll have more influence in changing the behaviors that are causing you grief and all that good stuff
0: okay so available on amazon amazon Okay, I'll grab a copy and maybe you can sign it for me.
2: Sure. Um, Okay, let's get on to fun questions. John, you go first. All right, so holidays coming up uh, or holidays have already passed. Let me restate that. Holidays have already passed. Um, What is the meal that uh, will be most memorable for 2023?
1: The most memorable meal for 2023. And obviously
0: the burgers that we had because I was there, but... Go
1: with a different answer. Honestly, that that might just be it. That was just uh, filthy. Um, I was in France. There was some pretty good food there. I'm not gonna lie, but obviously it's gonna be something my girlfriend made. Pick any random meal my girlfriend made. That that'll be it. <laughs> well, so so
2: <laughs> so what what is it? Let's
1: let's pick one. It'll be something Ukrainian. <laughs> That's oh, okay. I wouldn't All be right. able to name it. I wouldn't be able to name it. <laughs> some um, they. I've developed a love for sour cream. I thought it was really, really weird. But she's Ukrainian. She just just, just put tons of it on everything.
0: I yeah. See, I only know sour cream. I guess from a Mexican point of view. I haven't thought of it yeah. from a
1: Ukrainian no, point. No, no. I'll have yeah.
0: to. I'll have to try and experience that. Um,
1: they put it in soup. They put it in everything.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, I I have one final question then. Obviously, I've got pictures of cars in the background. You've, I can kind of see half a picture of a circuit in the background on yours. Um, mine's going to have to be, because I know you've had some some nice cars. I think you had a Gallardo at some point. Uh, you were telling me a story maybe in Italy. Was that right? Did I get that right?
1: we are big fans of speeding in Italy, yes. It's the yeah, only I... time you ever live where the police, the main focus is on keeping traffic moving. So speeding is actively encouraged.
0: But yeah, they love it. I, I certainly remember that from there. But what, what's the best car you've ever driven and where was it?
1: Uh, tell you what, I'm I'm really getting into my kind of track days. And, you know, I thought I was a decent driver, but I'm like sort of really, really pushed the, the limits. So I've got a first gen uh, GT4 and I took that out to Donington. Uh Two three weeks ago, we yeah, no, a little while ago. That no, was back in December, um, and yeah, it's it's just mega on track. It's noisy, it's uncomfortable, but in in the moment, it's just really really intense.
0: Not a bad circuit,
1: Doddington. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, okay. So at some point, we'll have to meet up, and you'll have to take me out of out in one of your cars.
1: Yeah. I'm doing a whole uh, racing series with Caterham this year.
0: A friend of mine also does that. So remind me, and I'll I'll
1: give you his details. Caterham Academy. Um, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what he does. So, yes, we're out of time. It's great to have you on. Uh, I'm sure we'll get you back some really good insights. I'm going to grab a copy of your book and give it a read. And maybe I can quiz you a bit more. Um, But yeah, thank
2: you. Anything from you, John? No, good conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening.